Greetings. This is uh, Dan Bowser, and we're here today for America's Prayer Meeting podcast. And we are just uh, less than a week away from our second America's Prayer Meeting. We had ours back in in March, our uh, major launch and kick to call the churches together to pray. And uh, next Monday, Tuesday, the 12th and the 13th, we will once again have a live stream Uh, And it'll be more focused on our cities across America and the many, many ministries of prayer that are happening even now that you will be able to hear and to pray with uh, for for that America's prayer meeting. A podcast today, we have uh, co-host James Andrews hosting us today on Navigate Through. And our special guest today is Larry Lane. Uh, He's the CEO of the Sentinel Group. And uh, we had so many comments last time of the transformational videos that uh, were shown back in March of these uh, testimonies of God's power. And he's a great part of that and continues to promote in that uh, with his passion and desire to see revival. And so, Larry, we want to welcome you today. And I want to turn it over to James now to navigate this interview. Thanks. Thanks, Dan. Well, Mr. Lane, tell us, uh, I guess, t- give us a quick overview, uh, you know, in, in as, as much or as little detail as you'd like to share. Uh, Sentinel Group, um, just the name in and of itself evokes uh, the, the thoughts of transformation. But uh, give us, tell, us, tell us about Sentinel Group and your belief in the necessity and the need for national prayer. Well, quick history of Sentinel is George Otis Jr., uh, is always been his primary ministry has been as a researcher. And he was actually, um, for a period of time in the 90s, sort of researching the dark side. He, he wrote a book called Twilight Labyrinth, which um, subtitled, Why Does Evil Seem to Linger More in Some Locations Than Others? And he did a lot of research around the world. But what he stumbled into um, were some amazing stories of these transforming revivals that completely changed whole communities. So he he came upon Amalanga, Guatemala, and Cali, Colombia, and all of that became the fodder for the first documentary we did in 1999. And his purpose behind that was actually simply to encourage intercessors that, hey, your prayer works and God moves and And what surprised him and us at Sentinel is that after that went out, it really took off and went viral. Within uh, six months, uh, we had about a thousand inquiries around the nation saying, this is amazing. How can it happen in our community? Which uh, we continued then really, it kind of pivoted Sentinel Group to doing more and more documenting these stories, as well as developing a a, a research and then a teaching arm of how communities can prepare for a move of God. So that's a little overview. My own inter, uh, intersection with that is uh, the quick story. And that is back in 1970, uh, there was some great moves of God, Jesus moving on, a, on the West coast. It was the Asbury revival uh, in Midwest, but most people don't know about a move of God took place in Saskatoon, Canada. Uh, the, the most famous person that came out of that was a man named Henry Blackaby who many know the Southern Baptists who uh, uh, wrote Experiencing God and became the head of their prayer and revival uh, department. Um, But a team from that, that revival came to upstate New York where my dad was pastoring and he went to a meeting and it just absolutely undid him. And God began to move in our church. I was just a high schooler. And really from that moment on, I, I was, I was hooked. I, once you've experienced that manifest presence of God, you are never the same and you'll never be satisfied with anything else. So 
even as a pastor for years, I, I pursued uh, revival, and that was my hunger and passion until finally in 2012, I left the pastorate to pursue this and joined up with George Otis, and uh, that's what I've been doing for, since that time. Okay. You just said something that struck, struck, a, struck a chord with me, just interest. How did you, in a little more detail, how did you guys experience the manifest presence of God as you were a high school student? So I, I tend to call what we experienced was more local, uh, revival with little R. It didn't change our whole community, though it did have some impact. But um, it, it really was my father just caught fire and was transformed. He became this very humble, broken, transparent person. And uh, his humility and prayer and on consecration, God obviously seemed to attach himself to. And in our congregation, uh, my, my, my standard uh, sort of byline on this is that uh, years ago, Vance Havner said that many churches start at nine o'clock dull and that, or start at 11 o'clock dull, excuse me, start at 11 o'clock sharp and then at 12 o'clock dull. And uh, our meetings, God was there. I, as a high school, I, I mean, he was just in our midst. And it's the only way you explain that, that weightiness of his glory in our midst. And he just took over the services. And we never knew once it began where it was going. But God would be there and be doing his work. And the services, no one complained about the services going long. I couldn't wait to come to the evening service. I couldn't wait to go to prayer meeting. And then throughout the week, uh, the impact it had and my life as a young person and sharing Christ. There's so many uh, offshoots of that in my life. And, uh, but it was, it was just God himself that was in our midst. And that is um, the most compelling thing that ever can happen to a human being is to be able to experience that sense of his glory in his midst. And like I said, once you've had that and tasted that, it's hard to do church as usual. So you, you experienced it personally uh, in, in your, your youth, which was what, about five, 10 years ago? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and and then now over your your career, your matriculation as a as a document, uh, what do you call it? Uh, someone who makes documentaries, a, a documentarian. <laughs> okay, as a documentarian, you've you've gone into to record these uh, these transformations, these revivals in different places. I guess which kind of invokes two questions. Some, if you can, think of some of the more memorable places you you visited, um, and then what commonalities do they share? Well, um, the second question is easier to answer than the first, only because because I joined Sentinel in 2013. Uh, I even had as many experiences as George has running around the world chasing these stories. So I've had opportunity uh, to meet up with many of these revival leaders in South Africa and some other places um, to hear their stories firsthand. Um, and I've been in some locales too, uh, to do that. But the second, let me talk about the second question first. One, once we've got that request uh, from those thousand churches and others since then saying, wow, this is amazing. How can we have it in our community? George, because he's a researcher, said, you know what? I have some ideas, but let me get back to you. And he spent the next 15 years studying a th about a thousand cases, uh, about 200 historical, 800 contemporary of what we call transform revival, where God just overruns an entire community. And the question he asked, and this is your question, what was the same in every one? Because we knew if we could find these patterns, 
these were principles and we would know what does God respond to. And this is then became the foundation for what we teach in helping communities understand how God responded in the past and how we can position ourselves for him to respond to us today. That's the theoretical. Do you want more detail? <laughs> Just, yeah, well, that's, that's the, the question. So I, I guess what, what have you noticed uh, either from prior to your, your uh, affiliating joining single group or since you've become active within, have you, I mean, is, what ties sort of string them if not all of them, what do you see that's similar? Oh, no, there's some that's practice. true in every single case. Every single case, there's certain, there's commonality. And um, it's not going to be anything that would shock or surprise uh, people. Um, there is always uh, a deep humility uh, amongst the people, and they humble themselves. There is a hunger to see God move. There is a deep repentance, um, and there is expectant faith um, to see that God will respond to our cries. So, you know, th- those are probably those those foundational things that are there, which, you know, we, we've seen that in Second Chronicles 7.14. We quote it all the time. Our problem is this. Um, I said to George once, I said, um, most of the communities that we've documented that have seen transformation and seen a great revival began in devastation. And the devastation in the community led to a measure of desperation. And that desperation, then God responded to the cries of his people and brought about transformation. The problem in America is we haven't been that devastated and consequently, unfortunately, not that desperate. We, we would love to see revival. I mean, it would be nice to have. But as Leonard Ravenhill once said, uh, if you can live without revival, you will. And most people who even ask for revival can probably live without it. So we do. So there's, there's a need to increase desperation. Now, the, the silver lining in the, in, in the kind of moral unraveling of our country is the increasing desperation among Christians, which is a good thing that's coming out of this, which could lead potentially to the kind of desperate prayers that do trigger a move of God. I, was, I had to write that down. You said devastation yields desperation, which yields transformation. Sort of, I guess that's the same sort of uh, form as necessity is the, what is it, the father of innovation? But in this case, with us being believers, it's necessity. We should be in deep prayer. We should be in deep humility before there is devastation and, and desperation. Excellent. Right. Well, I guess you started to tie that into just America and, and our need for transformation. Um, even speaking with the communities you spoke of in their devastation, in their desperation, what were some of the acts or what were some of the things that they, they did to, in, in response? Uh, obviously, we're talking America Pray, so I'm imagining prayer was a large part of that. You can't just speak on that as long as well as I don't know whether it was Bible, whether it's fellowship, uh, whatever the case may be. Well, what were some of the actual tools or, or, or actions that people take have taken? Sure. Sure. Well, um, not surprisingly, people pray. That's always been the foundation. People began to gather and and and, and not necessarily in um, large stadium events and things like that. God tends us to, to start small and work through a remnant. 
but there always would be a group of desperate people. And I can speak to not just the stories we've created. I fancy myself to be a revival historian, so I can talk about a lot of things in American history and where that began as well. In fact, I think with what we're doing here, there's a relevant story with a second great awakening I could share later. But um, for example, in Manchester, Kentucky, let's talk about in America here where there was a great outpouring there. Um, the devastation uh, was related to a, a county, Clay County, that had become incredibly overrun and controlled uh, by drugs. And the alcoholism and the drugs that hit the high school, they said about 90% of the student body was uh, somehow connected drugs and alcohol in a, in a destructive manner. In fact, um, they said because of the either drug overdoses or accidents related to drugs and alcohol, that some of the highways leading it to Manchester because people put up those little white crosses wherever someone had an accident, it began to look like picket fences. There were so many. And the, uh, the drug dealers had such control over the government and such that they literally would just drive up to the drugstores through the drive through to pick up their drugs. It was just incredibly sad conditions. So uh, the, but the, there was really the young people and the young people began to die at an alarming rate. Uh, that got the whole attention of the community to feel like, you know, we're not going to have a next generation if we don't pray. So they began to gather every week on Saturday morning and began to not just pray, but you'd cry out. They, here were people in there that lost children or had friends that lost children. There was a level of desperation now that just triggered a real crying out to God. That lasted for a number of months. And then um, a Baptist minister got a vision. So, you know, the Lord's at work when the Baptists get visions, right? So that's just, you know, and you know, Amen. it's the Lord, right? So, so this Baptist pastor got a vision of them doing a march um, through uh, Manchester, Kentucky, which you think, what's the big deal of that? Well, this goes to a core issue. Often in community, there's some core iniquity that has to be dealt with. Otherwise, the Lord won't move. Some collective uh, sin that has to be addressed. And, and clearly in Manchester, Kentucky, it was the complacency of the churches that allowed the drug uh, dealers and uh, just to move in unchecked and unchallenged while the pastors and churches were more worried about Sunday school attendance and, and having all good offerings, uh, their, their community and their young people would be stolen. And so there was this apathy. So they planned this march, which is no big deal. Oh, it was a big deal. The they they began to receive uh, some of the pastors' threats. For some of the drug dealers, people would drive up in front of their homes at night and just park there for a while, just to intimidate. Um, the um, the sheriff department from the next county over, uh, the two leading pastors and uh, the Baptist pastor, another Pentecostal pastor, were leading this movement. Uh, the 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 sheriff's department of the county over warned them: if you get pulled over in your own county or it looks like a blockade says, turn around, run says the word is out. They're either going to try to kill you or entrap you. That's how bad it was. And so the day of the March, um, it was a rainy cold day in early May. They didn't know if anyone was going to show up, but they're going to go forward. And there were literally drug dealers and stuff on the side of the road, taking names down of people who were going to march in this thing. So it was a, it was a stand against apathy. Well, surprisingly, for a small community, 4,000 people showed up to march. And they marched through the town in that rain, and they got to the park. And there was about uh, 25 pastors or so at that moment then knelt in the mud and cried out to God, asking forgiveness for caring more for their churches than their community. 
And at that moment, I remember Doug Abner, who's one of the leaders there, said the presence of God so fell on the whole community. He said, we were, we said, we were scared. I mean, it was exciting and terrifying at the same time. God was in our midst. We were, we were so afraid to do anything wrong. And at that moment, everything changed. Everything began to change. Within six months, 14 government leaders and police people went to prison. Uh, uh, the whole place got cleaned up. The schools totally got turned around where almost no drug and alcohol issues uh, after the, re- the move of God in that place. So on and on it goes. I could tell you more stories. So that's just one example kind of walking you through what took place there. Now, doesn't look there'll always be prayer. There'll always be repentance. But some of the uh, attendant things could differ depending on the community. I'll stop talking unless you ask questions. Oh, yeah, no, I got I questions agree. there. Let me, James, let me jump in here. Uh, was that Lonnie Riley in Kentucky? Was that the pastor? That was now, now Lonnie's in Lynch, Kentucky. Okay. Lynch is about, um, about an hour and 45 minutes uh, east of Manchester. Manchester's sort of at the foothills, the Appalachian Mountains there, coming up 75. But um, in Lynch, and here's another place, that's, that's another remarkable story. I have very good friends with Lonnie Riley, but... Um, Lynch was, again, a place that was just uh, wasn't much of a town left. By the time Lonnie got there, uh, there was maybe uh, 600 people there. And there were three towns in a row, little towns. They're all owned by uh, coal companies or, or um, steel companies. Lynch was owned by U.S. Steel. They were company-owned towns until the coal industry, you know, uh, declined, and they pulled out, and then the town was just devastated. But Lonnie's wife, Belinda, grew up there in Lynch, and Lonnie grew up there in Harlan County. And um, he was a successful pastor in Mississippi, had a wonderful suburban congregation and all the perks that went with it. He had the gated community, the nice home, the bass boat, you name it. it. Life was good, but he was not real satisfied. And they went back to Lynch, and there's really hardly anything there, to bury Belinda's mom and to settle her what little estate she had. And they were coming back from um, Lynch, back to Mississippi, and God spoke to both of them at the same time. And he said to Lonnie and Belinda, at the same time, he said, um, I'm inviting you to come back to Lynch. But he said, you'll have no church. You'll have no defined ministry. You'll have no salary. You'll have no bass boat, nice home. All those things you've had, you had none of those, but you'll have me. And they both said yes. And they moved back there, not realizing that people had already been praying there, which is always the case. But he became the catalyst. And it wasn't more than a, uh, I don't know, a year or two into their return. They had a prayer meeting uh, at a local park in which 200 people came. And and that's a lot of people when you only have 600 people in your town. And, uh, you know, some people thought he was crazy. Why would you move back to this dying town? But they at the prayer meeting, they asked Lonnie, I said, what do you think we ought to pray for? And Lonnie said this, which is very insightful. He says, you know, for years you depended on U.S. Steel. And when they pulled out, you began to depend on the U.S. government. I think it's about time you depend on God. Lonnie said what transpired when they began to repent, the Spirit of God came down, and they began to be on the ground just wailing before God, crying out for forgiveness. And Lonnie's and the Spirit of God came and began to change things. And Lonnie's whole ministry has been a prophetic testimony. Lonnie hasn't taken a salary since he's been there, and that's been nearly 25 years. And um, he, what they've seen accomplished 
he's like a George Mueller. You're familiar with George Mueller? Uh, yeah. He's just like George Mueller. I've never seen a man walk in faith, but he's a testimony to everyone that God is faithful and God will provide. They have now seen about a third of Harlan County come to Christ. Yeah. Um, and so, but it's not your typical revival with big church meetings. It actually started outside the church. And Lonnie's uh, ministry there is, has been sort of the focal point. Other churches have gotten on board, but it's just been different in that sense. It's been sort of a quiet revival, yet they constantly see people come to Christ. The whole community of Lynch has become revitalized. And the other parts of the guy, it's a pretty amazing story. If Lonnie was here, he could keep tell you stories for the next five hours and just of God's provision of just. Well, we'll try to get him on stories. at some point to be able to share that to share yeah. that with us. Your your whole life, uh, what you what you're saying, and you mentioned the Saskatoon revival, Canadian revival, and and Ralph Sutera, who was one of the right. evangelists that was a right. part of that. I'll never forget what he told me one time. He said, "Dan, don't ever forget the power of testimony." Your life is the power of testimony from what happened to from New York, where your dad heard about the Canadian revival was transformed. Mm-hmm. You was transformed. What you're sharing about in Kentucky, which is in our locale, the, the eastern seaboard, um, th- this is not God is able to do it again. Uh, the, these Amen. testimonies of our lifetime and uh, America's prayer meeting, which is focused on this, is again that we don't always have to go through devastation. It seems that we're heading that way. Uh, But this desperation of America's prayer meeting where we're becoming fervent and urgent uh, with all the remedial judgments, you would think that the church, COVID, suicides off the charts, mass murders. Last month we had five mass murders in the United States. Never had that before. You would think the church would respond out of desperation, like you said, in Kentucky, where life and death and parents are burying their children. Um, do you see this in other places in the United States? And I know we've got to wrap up our time. Uh, I'm going to turn it back over to James, but that's the last, last question I'll have. And then James, I'll turn it back over to you to, to conclude. What do you see right now in the United States for the church? We, we're, we're talking about prayer, repentance, and this desperation that's needed in the, in the prayer meetings. Um, and I would not, you know, I may not travel as much as others. You know, I do try to be an observer of what's taking place. So I would hardly call my an expert on what's going on all over the nation. There's certainly an increased interest in revival and an increased sense of our need for revival, which wasn't true probably five years ago. A lot of people thought it'd be a nice idea, but now it's like, oh, yeah, I don't know if there's any other option. I do think we struggle in America uh, because... We're easily distracted, and because of our affluence, we have lots of ways to soothe and comfort ourselves apart from God. And so um, the difference in some of those stories I mentioned is that the, the, the devastation was at their doorstep. Most of the devastation uh, around our country still hasn't come to the doorstep of the church, per se, though COVID came pretty close. Um, so I'm, I'm encouraged but still concerned that um, people are, even people are praying for revival. They're praying for something to happen out there. And here's one of our mantras that is incredibly important is revival is always personal before it's corporate. Before God is going to take your city, he's got to take your heart. And most people don't recognize their own need for, uh, uh, for God to move upon them. So they're, they're asking for God to do something, but he's not going to do it unless we are humbled ourselves, confessed our sin, seek the Lord, you know, those things have to apply personally before they'll be true corporately. 
So that's my thought in a nutshell. Okay. Now, let me tell you a quick story just to encourage America Pray here. Um, prior to the Second Great Awakening, a Baptist pastor in New England in 1794 named Isaac Bacchus um, was encouraged and stirred by what was going on with the awakening of uh, beginning to grip uh, uh, the UK. So he sent out a notice to every pastor and leader he could get a hold of throughout the, the United States at that time, mostly along the obviously Eastern seaboard, uh, calling for them to pray once a month on Monday to set aside a day for prayer. And uh, the churches overland respond partly because Things have got most people don't realize uh, during the Civil War and post Civil uh, Civil War, excuse me, during the Revolutionary War and post Revolutionary War, things were pretty dark and desperate in this nation. They were not very healthy and good morally and elsewise. So these they came together, they began to pray locally, and uh, God began to move. And of course, we know as far as our Kentucky and Tennessee locations here, the greatest expression of that was in the uh, Cane Ridge and uh, Red River revivals and so forth that spread into North and South Carolina and Georgia, the South there. But, but it was simply someone, someone who took the initiative to say, we need to pray and we need to call upon God. So I appreciate Doug and others and leadership of this of just saying, Hey, come on, America, we need to pray. Excellent. Excellent. Well, what I'd like to do two things. One, um, want to see if you'd be available and willing to come back and do this again. I think you have a lot of, uh, like you said, testimony is extremely powerful. People relate specifically to narratives because they're alive, as opposed to a lot of times just people uttering uh, responses about whatever's going on. I want to see if you could commit to doing that one. Then secondly, if you'd like to go ahead and pray us, pray us into conclusion. Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll say yes to both. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So, Father, even as I pray now, and we talked about, Lord, and I just said, you know, that revival's personal before it's corporate. And I just want to invite you, Lord, to continue to work in this heart of mine. Father, I want to be a catalyst for what you want to do, not an obstacle. I want you to work so in my heart that the overflow of my life would make others hungry for you. So, Lord, work in this heart. And I pray, God, as this podcast and the um, uh, America Praise goes out and people are praying, oh, Lord, I'm asking, Holy Spirit, that you'd bring a measure of conviction upon us and upon your people and upon the church. The Lord, we recognize that judgment begins with the house of God, and you're going to work in us in here before you work out there. So, Lord, I pray as America Praise, you would call America to repentance, and we need your Holy Spirit to do its convicting work in us. We pray that, God, you would do exceedingly above and beyond all that we could ask or imagine for our own lives, for our family, for our communities and our nation. And so, Jesus, for your honor and glory, we lift these things up. We ask, oh God, that you'd have mercy upon us and do what only you can do. And what you've done in the past, you'll do again for Christ's sake and for his glory. Amen. 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 Uh, before I conclude, how can I forget? If someone wants to, you know, further information to donate, uh, wants to get in touch, how best can they contact you? Uh, through our website, sentinelgroup.org. Uh, there's a donate button there. It's probably the easiest way to do that on the website would be our contact information as well. If you wanted to just make personal contact. Excellent. Excellent. All right, Mr. Lane, thank you very much. And I'll see you here on, on, on a live with us again. We can do it. I'm absolutely convinced that the great need in America is for another great awakening, and that only happens when God's people get serious about prayer. 
You know, we're going to do something starting the evening of March 15th and all day on March 16th that we're calling America's Prayer Meeting. And we want to invite you to join us. This is not something where you just watch and listen and enjoy. This is where you jump in and you pray. We want to point you to americapray.net. It's a site that it's going to continue to change. We're still developing it, but it's going to be an important place for you to find all the information you need to pray with millions of us for God to move in power in our nation. Join us, americapray.net, for America's prayer meeting.